Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. A couple days early. Can you do that? I just did. Piggybacking on what Todd just read, the about using our wealth. The Gospel of Luke speaks of wealth more than any of the others. Makes a um, Luke makes a big deal about it. In fact, he says, I've got those in, in your bulletin there. You see in chapter 6, Luke 6, verse 24. Let's just look through it real quick as by way of introduction. In Luke chapter 6, verse 24. Again, these are listed on the first bullet point in your, uh, your outline. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. That's not real encouraging. If you're rich, look over chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. It's beautiful to hear pages of God's Word flipping, is it not? If you're on an iPad, you've got to tap hard to be able to be heard. Chapter 12, verse 20. Jesus said, but God said to him, he's telling a a parable about a guy who wants to sell everything or knock down his barns and put a bunch of, build bigger barns and eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Go over to chapter 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I put out in the little area of my Bible here, at least not successfully. You can try to serve both, but you will not successfully serve. You will hate one and love the other. Be devoted to one and hate the other. And then chapter 18, verses 24 to 25, where Jesus had a a rich man that came to him and, and said, good teacher, how can I have eternal life? Jesus puts him through the ringer and said, well, have you kept the commandments? Sure, I've kept that, I've kept that. Maybe he thought he did. Maybe he thought he was a good person, as most people do. Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. He couldn't do it. 1824, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. It's impossible. And what Todd prayed before our sermon today is that we're all wealthy, relatively speaking. We all have enough to where we have to determine what we'll give up. Will we give up 1% of our income to the church coffer? 10%, 20%, any percent? What are we willing to part with? All of it? And the next story that that follows in chapter 18, you've got the poor guy there. Uh, Mark calls him Bartimaeus in chapter 18, verses 35 uh, through 43. He didn't have anything, but he knew Jesus was approaching. He was told Jesus was approaching. He's blind. He couldn't see, but he was told Jesus of Nazareth is coming. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David. He says, I know who you are. You're the king. You're the Messiah. 
And Jesus asks him perhaps the dumbest question in all of scripture, but he does it with this grin on his face, no doubt. What is it that you, blind man, would like me to do for you? What would you like me to do? Uh, Do you got a Snickers bar? (laughs) I want to see. Of course you want to see. Done. Healed. Your faith has saved you. It didn't just cause him to see that day. It saved his soul. Faith. Poor guy. When Jesus told him to come to him or when he was summoned by Jesus, he didn't have anything to leave. He didn't have two houses. He didn't have a huge bank account. He just had a mat he had been laying on. I'll leave that. Jesus is summoning me. Hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. A little easier for a poor man. But mind you folks, it's impossible for both. It's impossible for us to be saved. But what is impossible for us is possible for God. He can do what we can't. And that's why we praise him. So we see this story, this familiar story, if you grew up in Sunday school like I did, about a young man, or I said young man, a short man named Zacchaeus. Jesus is being followed by a large crowd. He's on his way to Jerusalem for his final days. He knows what's going to happen to him. In fact, he reminded the disciples, we looked at it last week in chapter 18, verses 31 to 33. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get arrested, whipped, beaten, tortured, I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave. He knew it. There was no mistake. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. That's why God became man. God became man, Jesus of Nazareth, to live our life and then die our death. He's not going to try to avoid it. He knew what he was doing. Every moment, every place he went was choreographed by him. He's making his way. He's about 18 miles outside of Jerusalem because he's in Jericho, which is 18 miles outside of Jerusalem. It's 3,000 feet below Jerusalem, so the 18 miles is a trek upward at this point. So in in chapter 19, verse 1, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Mind you, there's a huge crowd there. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, by the way, is Zakai in the Old Testament. It's used twice um, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, it's a Hebrew name. He's clearly a Jewish man. His name means, of all things, clean or innocent. Clean or innocent. He's anything but. He passes through. He was a, writ- he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. You know, something we would say, yeah, he's rich. Chief tax collector. There's many tax collectors in and around Israel. We've met Levi, who became Matthew in chapter 5. Jesus saved him. No one liked him much. People don't like tax collectors. Not then, not now. You meet somebody and say, hey, what do you do? I work for the IRS. Good to meet you. We love what you're doing. We never say that. We should, because they're not doing anything wrong. I know. I know. You got to kind of laugh at that, but... uh, if they're doing their job, they're doing their job. Tax collector was supposed to collect taxes. If you're, mind you, Israel is dominated by the Roman Empire at this time. Rome wants their taxes. Israel had enough taxes to pay to their priesthood, so they were taxed already, and now Rome wants to tax them more. They hated the Romans for this. Rome had their tax collectors, but if you put up enough money to bid to have this job, you could also be a tax collector. Many Jews, therefore, became tax collectors. Now, these people were most hated because they were trying to exact, or I should say extort taxes and money from their own people. 
So the Jews hated Jewish tax collectors because Jewish tax collectors were traitors. They were working for Rome to try to bilk money out of their own people. And Zacchaeus was chief among them. He would have had underlings all under him. Uh, publicans, they were called. There were three main tax centers in Israel. One was in Caesarea, Maritime, right on the, the coast. You come, uh, you come ashore on, in Caesarea, you arrive there, you get taxed. You go into Capernaum, you get taxed. Right there near the sea where all the fish were caught and in Jericho. The three main tax centers. It appears that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector over all the other tax collectors in Jericho. And the good tax collector gets his money. And a tax collector is supposed to exact taxes for Rome and then to take whatever else he wants to fund his own lifestyle. So they could do whatever they wanted. I remember being in Romania one time uh, doing a, one of my mission trips over there and we were at a, a camp and where I was teaching and it was a beautiful camp. There were some tennis courts and we were sitting outside and I was talking to the guy who owned the camp and a truck comes down the road and he goes, oh no, here they come. Uh, who's that? Uh, tax collectors. Now this, we're in Romania, the guy that owns it is German and he said, here they come, tax collectors. I said, what are they going to do? I said, didn't you pay your taxes? He said, oh, it's not, did you pay your taxes? It's, are we paying our taxes? Because they come in, what they saw was a bunch of people at this encampment where I was teaching. They come in, oh, you got some people. Looks like you're doing okay. You owe us another $10,000. You have to do it. It's not like the United States of America. There are a lot of bad things about our country, but it's a lot better than that country. And so tax collectors then and in places in our present world, they get whatever they want, and you have to pay them. This guy did the same thing. This was Zacchaeus, chief tax collector, and of course he was rich. So he's just like we might think about that rich guy that came to Jesus in just a, just a page over in your Bible, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's another one of them. That guy left because Jesus gave him the answer he didn't want. Maybe some of you will be here today. You're visiting or you visited and you'll hear something and you go, you know what? I didn't get what I wanted out of that. We're not coming back to that church. Shame on you. I'm giving you God's word. If you came for God's word, whether you like it or not, it's God's word, right? Yeah, but we don't like you. Well, that's, uh, maybe that's your problem. I don't know. That happens, though. I've had it happen a time or two. <laughs> Zacchaeus, in verse 3, was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was unable because of the crowd. So we know the crowd is still large, and he was small in stature. We're not told how small. Uh, most of the commentaries I read say that he was probably in the nature of uh, not quite five feet tall. Your average Israelite male of between 5'7 and 5'10. Uh, this guy must have been very short. He probably made Jose Altuve look, look tall. Whatever he was, he was rich. He's a half pint guy. People like to make fun of half pint guys. Believe me, I've been there. I know that. I'm like a three quarter pint, but I'm not quite half pint. And so the, he's rich, he bilks him out of the money, he's a traitor, and he's short. But because of the crowd, he needs to see Jesus. We're not told why he wants to see Jesus. It's possible that Jesus was just a celebrity in his mind. Hey, I want to see, you know, like Taylor Swift coming through town. Let's get a, get a, a, a I was going to say a whiff, but a sight of Taylor Swift. That, that wouldn't sound good, would it? I want to see Jesus, but I don't think so. I don't think that's, that was his goal. He was a chief tax collector. He could have had an audience with Jesus. He probably had the biggest house in town with the most influence. Could have gotten him at his house. He was the guy in power. Jesus could have come and seen him. I think, and I'm just making this up, so don't think it's in the Bible. 
I think he felt an emptiness in his soul, as people do. I think that he, he realized that the money, all the wealth he had and the power he had wasn't enough, as wealthy people tend to figure out along the way. He wanted to catch a glimpse of this guy whom the whole countryside at this point, three years into his ministry at this point, Jesus is, a little over three years. He wants to catch a glimpse of this guy that heals everyone. Might have just heard that he healed that blind guy because he was right outside of Jericho when he did it in the previous context. I want to see him. Maybe he can help me. A yearning in your soul or in his soul. So verse 4, so he ran on ahead and he climbed up in a sycamore tree. This would have been like a live oak, a strong, sturdy tree. Climbed up into it in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. This is a very undignified way of acting for any man, especially someone who's a chief tax collector in the land. Going to go climb a tree to see? Not necessarily a cool way to behave, but the only way he could see is if he climbed this tree. You can see him kind of climbing up, pulling up here and there, and then finding a limb to go sit on. So as the crowds come by right underneath him, he's going to get a bird's eye view of Jesus That's what he did. He ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that place. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus. How does Jesus know his name? Have they met before? Yeah, that's an easy one right there, Bill. How does Jesus know his name? He does know everything, but other people, he doesn't call them by name. He even asks, Some people, what's your name? He asked the blind man, if Jesus is so dense as to ask a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? And yet here he knows this guy's name. Turn over, if you would, just one gospel over to Luke chapter, I'm not, John chapter 10. If you have your Bible, John 10. Jesus is telling a parable, putting himself as the shepherd and the sheep. If you know anything about shepherds and sheep, Sheep are known to know the voice of their shepherd. A sheep can be lost, and other shepherds can call. A sheep can, go, can, can stray away from his own flock, blend into another flock, and then later hear his shepherd's voice run away and follow his shepherd. Jesus says in John 10, 3, he's talking about himself as the, as the great shepherd, He says, to him the doorkeeper opens, in verse 3, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Look down at verse 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. I love that. Do you remember at the beginning of John? Go back to John 1. John 1, verse 47, verse 46, 47. Jesus is, um, he's just come out in his public ministry. John the Baptist has pointed to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Two of John's disciples, two of John the Baptist's disciples are there, and he sends them away. Their name are Andrew, the brother of Peter, and John, the brother of James. They go following Jesus. John gets his brother James, Andrew gets his brother Peter, and they come across a guy named Nathaniel, who's a friend of theirs as well. John chapter 1, verse 46, 
Nathanael said to him, they're telling Nathanael, we found the Messiah. Nathanael says to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? No way, people, no way the Messiah is coming out of that hick town, he's saying. Philip said to him, come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, Nathanael apparently under the fig tree thought he was all alone, probably praying, no one around in sight. His prayer request that day was probably along the lines of, Lord, I know it's just you and me right here, just you and me all alone. Little did he know Jesus heard everything he said and saw him. So while Nathanael thinks he's all alone, Jesus said, I saw you. You know me, Lord? How? Before Philip even called you, I knew you. Why? Because Jesus knows all of his own by name. So when he comes to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, this hated, loathed tax collector by the Jewish society, sitting on a tree branch, looking down at Jesus to just get a sight of him, Jesus looks up. Imagine the scene. And the crowd is everywhere. All the things that Jesus could be doing, all the people he could be talking to, he looks up to the wicked tax collector, Zacchaeus. I'm trying to find where I am now. There it is, verse 5. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today, I must stay at your house. He doesn't say, I'd like to have lunch with you. Come down, let's talk. No, Zacchaeus, you ever been called by name by someone you don't know? It's kind of freaky. People have, I've had some people, I was walking by the tennis courts one day, and this lady um, grabs me and she says, I know you. And I went, oh my goodness, what have I done? I know you. She got right in my face, got sunglasses on. You're that preacher. <laughs> not me. That's not me. <laughs> That's somebody else. But it ended up being a good meeting, I think. She said, oh, I love a blah, blah, blah. She knew me by name. It was just weird. But for the son of man to look up and say, Zacchaeus, come on down. Today, I must. I want you to underline must if you like to underline your Bible. I must. It's, it's the Greek word D-E-I, day. It means it is necessary. I have to. Today, I must stay at your house. Also, I want you to underline today. It comes back. Verse 6, and he hurried and came down, received him gladly. Wait, let me get down out of the tree. Climbs out of the tree, comes on down the trunk. The whole crowd is there. They're all wondering, what in the world? They've got to be wondering, why would he talk to this guy? We hate this guy. Is he going to give him a good, a good beating? Is he going to whoop him for stealing all of our money? Is he going to berate him a bit? He receives him gladly. No, there's nothing here about faith. There's nothing here. He doesn't fall at Jesus' feet and start worshiping him. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He just receives him gladly. Now, I believe that there's a gap between verses 6 and 7. The gap is the time it took for Jesus to go with Zacchaeus and his disciples to Zacchaeus' home and to have this dinner Jesus talked about. So, when they leave, we might add in there, in that little parenthesis, verse 7, when they saw, that's the crowd, when they saw it, they all began to grumble. 
saying, he has gone. Note the tense of the verb. He has gone. He's left. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Can you believe that Jesus would stop what he's doing and go have dinner, lunch, or whatever it is, with a sinner? Can you believe that? I mean, who else is Jesus going to eat with if he doesn't eat with a sinner? That's all he's got to work with. Sinner. Why? Because we're all sinners, are we not? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one of us. We like to think that there are people worse than us. We like to hang with people that are worse than us so we can feel better than them. Or compare ourselves to them. But in reality, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And the wages of sin is death. We're all going to die because we're all sinners. We might not have sinned to the extent that Adolf Hitler sinned. But we're all sinners. Don't miss that, folks. If you miss that we're all sinners... And you somehow think that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner, but I'm, I'm good enough. You've missed it. You're not good enough. None of us are good enough. For Jesus to come into our home, to know us by name, to call us, to speak to us at all, certainly to have dinner in our home. So the crowd is going, he can't do that. They're grumbling. God hates grumblers. What happened to Israel when they got in the wilderness? They all believed. They believed enough in Egypt to paint blood It was as weird then as it would be now, folks, to paint blood from a lamb on your doorposts. Here's here's what God told Moses. Tell the people, slay a lamb, take the blood, and paint your doorpost with blood. Because tonight, God tells Moses, in 1500 BC, I'm going to fly over Israel. The death angel is going to pass over every home that has blood on its doorpost. And the firstborn in that home will not die. Really? Okay. That takes faith because it's weird, isn't it? Then as now. Imagine coming home. Wife, we're going to have to paint our, our doorpost blood, blood red. No, we're not. Another one of your cockamamie ideas, dear. We're not painting it blood red. Oh, yes, we are. You want to live? You want our son to live? We're painting that doorpost in the blood of a lamb. And those who did lived, the firstborn lived. And those people exited Egypt, hence the exodus. They left Egypt. But when they got into the wilderness, they began to not believe. They believed something. But when they got out there, they began to do what? To grumble. What is this? What's going on, Moses? We had melons and leeks and onions and spices in Egypt. You brought us out to this wasteland to eat? How dare you? We're better off in Egypt. That's someone looking back on their their previous life of when they supposedly come to know Jesus and say, you know what? It sure was more fun to be an unbeliever. That's what grumbling does. This group is grumbling. This crowd is grumbling. They're not saying, wow, isn't that amazing? No one stands up and says, isn't it amazing that once again we see our Lord in his grace going and having lunch with a a wicked sinner like Zacchaeus. No one stands up and says, you know what, he saved others. Imagine what he might do with Zacchaeus. No, they wanted Zacchaeus dead. So they're grumbling. Flashback to Zacchaeus' house, verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of all my possessions I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, I will give back four times as much. We miss everything. We don't see anything where Jesus, or I should say, where where Zacchaeus says, I believe, I love you, Lord, I confess my sins to you. I mean, he does, but there's nothing here in faith. Luke only records his repentance. Luke records the fruit of his faith. 
The faith here is implied. He believes Jesus. In fact, he was looking for Jesus. That's why he went and got in the tree. He wanted to see Jesus. Now Jesus is talking to him. He's in his home. And whatever had transpired, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, who knows what's happened? They've probably eaten. Maybe they're sitting back after the meal. And he says, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. Notice in the previous context, Jesus told that rich guy, you need to give up everything, sell it, give it to the poor, and move and come follow me. He doesn't tell Zacchaeus that. Zacchaeus volunteers it. Half of my possessions? He's a wealthy guy. Half of my possessions? I'll give, if I have a million dollars in the bank, I will give $500,000 of it. Now I'm half a millionaire. That's pretty good. It's pretty amazing. But he does more. And if I have defrauded anyone, and by the way, this is a first class conditional clause in the Greek text, and it, it means, and since I have defrauded people, and if he's a good, you know how accountants are. They love a good spreadsheet. Everything's recorded. Notes and monies and hereby I've ripped off, no doubt. Everything is kept. That's what a good accountant does. He knows who he's defrauded. It's as if he's saying, I'm going to go back to my records, to those logs, and I'm going to find everyone that I have defrauded. And I'm going to pay him back four times. Now the Old Testament, folks, only demands in Numbers chapter 5, verses 5, 6, and 7, only demands 20%. In other words, if you stole $100 from someone, if you acquired $100 that wasn't yours, and you had your conscience, you would pay back the $100 plus 20%. So you'd pay $120. That's the Old Testament way of reconciling what you did wrong. He's saying, if I stole $100, I'm paying back $400. In addition to the fact that I've given half of my wealth over to the poor. And Jesus never told him to do it. If I've defrauded or since I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Note what Jesus says in verse 9. Jesus said to him, today? Notice, remember I told you in verse 5 to underline today? Today I must have a meal at your house. Verse, in the same day, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation doesn't take long all happens in the same day when you believe. It's not a long process. It's a moment. It's here's what I did believe. Here's what I was doing as a result of my unbelief. And now I believe that you, Jesus, are the Son of Man, the Son of God, God in flesh. I believe that today, and now I believe this today, and today I am saved. Today, salvation, not blessing, salvation has come to this house. Why? Because he too, speaking of Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. A son of Abraham. Now folks, if you were a Jew, you're a son of Abraham. Or a daughter. By descent, Abraham, God called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He gave him a wife, Rebekah. I'm sorry, I'm way ahead of myself, aren't I? Did you catch that? He gave him a wife, Sarah. Sarah had a baby, and she was 90 years old, named Isaac. Isaac had a, a wife named Rebecca. See, it's in there somewhere. She had twins, Jacob and Esau. God chose Jacob, not Esau. Loved Jacob. 
Scripture says hated Esau, not in the sense that he loathed him, but he gave his love to Jacob, renamed Jacob Israel. Israel had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you are born from those tribes, you are a son by descent of Abraham, aren't you? In other words, all the Hebrew race, to include those of the Arab peoples who were born from Ishmael, are descendants from Abraham. Because Abraham had another son, didn't he? Ishmael. And Ishmael's father was Abraham, and he had children. Twelve tribes came from Ishmael. All of them point back to Abraham as our father. And they're right. My name, I believe, is Scottish. I'm told it's half Scottish, half English. Yes, somehow or another, I'm related to Giles, <laughs> whose father is here today, David Britton. And that's okay. I don't know how he's a Giants fan and I'm a Cowboys fan, probably because I'm saved and he's not. <laughs> but I am not a descendant of Abraham. And most of you aren't either. How can I be a son of Abraham? Let me show you. If you're in Luke, go over a cup, you go through the Gospel of John, that's the next book over, and then you'll go through Acts, and you're going to hit a book called Romans. Romans. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 2. Acts has 28 chapters. In some churches, they think it has 29. Act, or Romans chapter 2, verse 28. This book is written by the Apostle Paul, who was a, a Hebrew, a descendant of Abraham, born from the tribe of Benjamin, the last son born to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. Jews became, the name Jew became associated with what it meant to be Hebrew. If you're Hebrew, you're Jew. You're a Jew, you're Hebrew. All the same as, as an Israelite. Those are synonymous terms, mostly in the Bible. The Apostle Paul, from the tribe of Benjamin, the tribes of Israel says in Romans 2.28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Now all Jews, if you were, in, uh, if you were a Jewish boy, you didn't have any say in this. When you were eight days old, your parents took you to be circumcised. Circumcision was the outward fleshly symbol in the man where the seed comes from that shows you are a child, a descendant of Abraham. Paul is saying, who's from the tribes of Israel, says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. In other words, just because you got circumcised, that doesn't mean you're a Jew. Look at verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, capital S there, by the Holy Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, Paul is saying a true Jewish person is one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. How? Here's how it happens, folks. You see, God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He repeated it in Genesis 13. He repeated it in Genesis 15. He repeated it in Genesis 17. He repeated it in Genesis 19. He repeated it in Genesis 22. And then he repeated it to Abraham's son Isaac. And then he repeated it to Isaac's son Jacob called the Abrahamic covenant. I will give you, Abraham, and your people land. That's the land of Canaan, today called Palestine. I will give it to you through your son Isaac. Land blessing, and a seed, a seed. 
Semen is really the word. I will give you a seed. Abraham had a huge seed of people through both Ishmael and, or his, his mother, Ishmael's mother was Hagar, and through his wife, Sarah. All the people of Israel, all the Arabs can point back and say, Abraham is our father. Abraham's offspring is indeed like the stars of the heavens, like the sand on the seashore. But that's not what God promised. From that huge group of people that exist even today, one person, one seed descended, capital S seed, you know his name, Jesus of Nazareth. That's why you have the genealogies in the Bible. Don't skip them. Note that they all date back to Abraham and then they go through David and they come through Mary. The seed promise given to Abraham was ultimately Jesus. And every one of us who are not from the loins of Abraham, who believes in Jesus, becomes a son of Abraham. If you're in Romans, look over. Right after Romans, you've got 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. The next one is Galatians. Go to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Keeping in mind everything I just told you, Abraham or uh, the Apostle Paul comments on just what I told you. Galatians 3.16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. The Galatians, folks, are Gentiles. They're white, black. They're people that are not descendants of Abraham. And Paul is calling them the seed of Abraham, because if you've got Abraham here and the promise given to him, and the fulfillment is in Jesus who comes from Abraham, all the rest of us who put our faith in Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, become sons of Abraham. Whether you're a descendant of his or not. So when Jesus tells Zacchaeus, today you have become a son of Abraham, he is saying today you have become saved you may be a Jew already, but Jews in and of themselves without Christ, without their Messiah, are as lost as Gentiles are. You know, the Bible says in uh, Psalm chapter 14, the same psalm, it's repeated in Psalm 53, verses 1 to 3, there is no one, it says, who does what? No one who seeks for God. Which is strange today because churches set their their entire organization up as what they call seeker churches. To seek. Seeking what? No one seeks for God. No one. Paul repeats it in Romans chapter 3 verse 11. No one seeks for God. No one's good. No, not one. No one seeks for God. Well, wait a minute. Didn't the guy that came to Jesus in chapter 18 verses 18 to 30 Come and say, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? He was seeking Jesus, wasn't he? What about you? Or maybe someone you know. They went to church. They're going to church. They're seeking God. No, they're not. They're not seeking God. They're seeking a God. But they are not seeking Yahweh. They are not seeking the Lord God Almighty. 
Maybe you're here today. I'm seeking a new church. I want to see what this guy says. You're going to go away going, I don't like what he said, and I don't like how he said it. Okay, fair. But it's better for you to be offended by me than to die and face your maker and be offended for eternity there. No one seeks for God. No, not one. So what's Zacchaeus doing? What did you do? When you think you sought God, folks, if you truly sought God, I propose to you, he was seeking you first. If you were seeking God as an unbeliever and you came to church, you were looking for the word of God, you were looking for truth, and you received truth, all glory to God, you weren't seeking him. He sought you first and set you on your journey for him. All glory to him. Zacchaeus is that guy. Zacchaeus has got this empty part in him. These riches aren't doing what they're supposed to do. I'm unhappy. A guy like them with Jesus coming to town and those crowds goes, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go hang out in my castle. No, he runs in an undignified way, climbs a tree to get a view of this guy that he thinks might be able to give him. Fill that void in his soul. I believe he was tormented. And when he saw Jesus, he got something he didn't bargain for. Jesus knew his name. Why? Because Jesus knows his own. Calls us by name. I love that. I I just, I don't think there's anything better than that. Jesus knows his own. Why? Because he knew us according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, 5 and 6. He knew us when? When mama had us and gave us a name? Did God sit back and say, ah, David Lance Waldy. Nice to meet you, David Lance. That's my name, by the way. My first name is David. Doesn't mean you have to call me that. Mom and dad wanted me to be called Lance, so that's the way it is. Ah, there he is. Finally, he gave him a name. No. Did God know me then? He knew me before Genesis 1 even got started. Before the foundation of the world. And if you're in Jesus Christ, he knew you then too. Oh, he knows everybody. He's all-knowing. But he has an intimate knowledge of his own. A wonderful, intimate knowledge of his own. And he called Zacchaeus by name. Zacchaeus was seeking because God sought him. God looked at him, called his name, went to his house, gave him salvation. And the fruit of salvation manifested itself in his life immediately. He didn't have to be told, give. Throughout Luke's gospel, I've put in my own outline, salvation is difficult. It's difficult. It's not something you just come in, raise your hand, yeah, I'm in. I believe in Jesus too. I get eternal life. Here's what we've learned thus far in Luke's gospel. In chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Go there with me. We're flipping around. Let's go back and do it again. Chapter 9, 23, 24. Should be well worn in your Bible by now. Luke 9, 23. And he, that's Jesus, he was saying... To them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. He could have said, whoever wants to follow me, just say you're in and you're in. Once saved, always saved. Signed, sealed, and delivered. He doesn't. Deny himself. Take up your cross. Now and then, here and there, whenever it's convenient. No, daily. To take up your cross is to take up an instrument of death. I will die for you every day of my life, Lord, if that's what it takes. Follow me. 
Doesn't mean when you want to. It's not just on Sunday. It's not here and there. It's all the time. Salvation is difficult. Discipleship costs. Look over while you're there. Look chapter 14, verse 26 of Luke. Chapter 14, verse, we'll start with 25. As if to thin out the large crowds, Luke 14, 25, now the large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, this is not what you say when you like large crowds. He looks at him and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, folks, as we looked at there, he doesn't mean you must loathe mom and dad. It's about favoring God over them where you love nothing in comparison to God himself. That you love your little babies, you love your mom and dad lesser than you love God. And anyone who doesn't cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. And then we see in chapter 17, verse 33. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Remember that when you're persecuted? Remember that if someone ever puts a gun to your head and says, are you a believer in Jesus or not? Yep. I will die on that hill. Will you? Oh, the Lord wants me to live. He needs me to go home and take care of my family. No, he doesn't. It's not your family. God takes care of that himself. What are you going to say? If you are not willing to lose your life for Christ to give it all up, you are not a follower of Jesus. We see that discipleship is difficult. And what Jesus calls that rich young ruler to do, to give up everything, sell it, give the money to the poor and follow him, he wouldn't do it. Zacchaeus, I'm in. Why does one do it and the other doesn't? John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus tells this, says this. No one can come to me unless God the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to Jesus unless God the Father who sent Jesus to the earth draws that person to Jesus. And just a couple of passages later in John 6, 65, Jesus doesn't use the word draw, he uses the word enable. No one can come to me unless the Father enables them to come to me. God the Father enables Zacchaeus to come to Jesus because God was looking and searching for that lost soul. Not for the rich young ruler. Not for everyone on the planet. Everyone on the planet is not a child of God. A creation of God, but not a child of God. God's children are sought by Jesus and saved by Jesus. Look at, we're back in Luke 19. Look at verse 10. It's what he says. He too is the son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Remember those parables we looked at in chapter 15? There's a parable of the lost sheep. There's a hundred sheep, one wanders away. The shepherd leaves the 99 to go get the one lost sheep, brings him back. And what does he do when he finds it? He rejoices. It's a parable right after that of a woman who had 10 valuable coins. She loses one. 
She sweeps the whole house, goes and looks for everywhere and finds the one lost coin and has this big party because she found, found the one lost coin. It was great joy. On the heels of that is the parable we call the prodigal son. The son that took his dad's inheritance before dad even died, went off and spent it on riotous living. Came back, the father welcomed him with open arms, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, a robe on his body. Said my son was dead and he's now alive. There was great rejoicing. People of the liberal persuasion will say that Jesus just came. He was a good man and he was a pretty good teacher. And he came to set us an example. Luke says he is the son of man. You know that prophesied figure in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and 14. Who reigns forever. And he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. On your outline. That's what I put there. Having chosen his own, God seeks them in their depravity. Zacchaeus is a picture of a depraved human being. By the way, we're all totally depraved. Meaning we are unable. We are so sinful. We cannot seek for God. We don't have the spiritual wherewithal to realize we're lost until God puts that in our, our minds. You're lost. As he did with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is realizing, I'm not, I'm not happy here. I've got everything to be happy, and I'm not. There's a God-shaped hole in my soul. He represents depraved humanity. Unable to come to know God. Jesus here represents God because he is God who's seeking the lost because a lost sheep is never going to be found. A lost sheep, we saw them back in chapter 15, sheep are the dumbest animals on the planet. They are, by far. And God compares us to sheep as Christians. How's that? How's that for your self-esteem? Is that boosting your self-image? They have no defense mechanism. They have no wherewithal. They can't drink water unless you put their head down into it. If you've seen, I've told you, go on YouTube and just watch some sheep videos. The, well, the funniest one I see now is, is a, a guy helping his sheep out of this little, little trench, and he gets him out, pushes him out. The sheep jumps out, goes right back to the trench, falls back in. That's us. That's us. We're the dumbest animals on the planet. Sheep don't know when they're lost. A sheep doesn't look around and go, I'm lost. I think, I'll, I think my shepherd's over there. Doesn't know how to do that. You know, in the, in the shepherd's song of Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He, he says, my cup overflows. You know why he says my cup overflows? Because a sheep will not stick his head into water unless the flowing water is overflowing. Can't, won't. I don't know why. They're just dumb. So the shepherd has to make the cup overflow so the sheep can drink. Sheep don't know. Sheep can hear flowing water and then die of thirst they don't know where it is you and I are like sheep gone astray God has to seek us for us to be found and so he represents us Jesus represents he who who saves he goes out of his way to find his lost ones maybe you're here today maybe you came today you're you're empty you don't know what you're looking for someone dragged you to church because you're in town for thanksgiving I got to come to this church. How long does he preach? An hour? I'm going to sit there for an hour? Almost. 
And if I want, I mean, I, a friend of mine moved to Dallas and he said, Lance, the guy preached for an hour and 45 minutes. That makes me look pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> and he's 10 times better preacher than I am, no doubt. Maybe when you're that good, you can go for that long. People don't know. He did. But if you're here today, you're hurting, you're empty, you've got everything, you're trying to be thankful, it's Thanksgiving again, you're more worried about the people you got to eat with, oh, another Thanksgiving, got to go do this, got to do that. Anyone feeling that way? I have no idea what that means, but do you know what that feels like? (sighs) Going to eat with people you don't normally eat with, you'd rather not eat with, you want to do this, you're not going to get to do that. I know nothing of that. I don't. I may gripe, but I know nothing of that. I do know people who do. But you're feeling empty. You can try all you want. You can try sensual pleasures. You can try buying everything you want. Black Friday's coming up. I think it starts tomorrow, actually. Go buy, buy, buy. See if that fills that void in your soul. At the end of the day, you'll find it doesn't. And if it does bring you some bit of happiness, you're going to die. You are going to die. I don't care if you're young or old. You're going to cease breathing. And where will you be? Those things are not going with you. That's why we talk about Jesus saving us. He saves our souls. He takes us to be with him. In that place that is beyond our wildest imagination. How can you know you've been found by God? It's in your outline. How can you know? How can I know I've been found by God? Number one, when we repent and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I thought I was saved by faith. You are saved by faith. But those who are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone produce the fruit of salvation. If it ain't there, you ain't saved. You can say it all you want. But if you're not producing the fruit of salvation, Jesus himself says the same thing. John the Baptist says the same thing. Luke chapter 3. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You can't just say, I love Jesus, I'm in Christ, Jesus loves me, and go live life how you want. That is not a follower of Jesus. It's not taking up your cross daily. It's not following him daily. That's someone who says something and believes something else. We call those people hypocrites. How can you know when your fruit of your repentance is in keeping with your confession of faith? Number two, when we rest in Christ's finished work on the cross. You don't go around worried about the end of time. You're not worried about what's going on in the world today. It may cause you some angst, as it should, but at the end of the day, it's all unfolding prophecy. We know God's in control. When we rest, rest in Christ's finished work on the cross, you can't add anything to it. He said it. What were his last words? It is finished. It means paid in full. When something's paid in full, you don't know anything else. Can't add to what Jesus is doing. Oh, Keith Green used to have a song, still has a song. Keith is dead, and he's with Jesus now. But one of the lines says, my son, my son, why are you striving? I did it all while I was dying. It's called When the Praises Start. Go look that song up. It's, it should be back on the top of the list of great songs of all time. My son, my son, why are you striving? Why are you trying to be something? I did everything for you when I was dying. Rest in that. You know you're found by God when you rest in it. And number three, seeing our salvation as a blessing to others. Zacchaeus' salvation was a blessing to his entire house. What about your salvation? Is it a blessing to those you know? Is it a blessing to your children? 
you're married to an unbeliever, you might be, it might be a curse to them, but you're still bringing the Holy Spirit into your home. There's a blessing. Instead of living to get like Zacchaeus, you will begin to live to give. So you might be sitting back today going, there's just something missing, Lance. I don't know what it is. I believe all those things. So let me ask you one question. Are you giving your money? Oh, here it is. He's begging for money. Folks, it's all throughout the context. I've, I've got to. We've seen it more in Luke than in any other book in the Bible. If you aren't giving your money, you are not worshiping. Anyone can sing a song. A sacrifice comes from our checkbook. That's the sacrifice. That's the worship. Oh, I thought we worshiped when we sang. Sing? Who can't sing? Unbelievers can sing. There's there's some good tunes behind Christian songs that unbelievers can, can sing and say, hey, that's a pretty good song. I like that. Doesn't mean they're worshiping. They're just singing a song. You want to worship, give. You want to fill that hole, the void in your life? Give. If Jesus calls one man to give up everything and he won't and he goes away, if you can't give 1%, 10%, you're definitely not going to give up everything. There are holes in our lives, folks. We call ourselves Christians. We want to think God is a God of love, and He is. But God is also a God of wrath. And the wrath of God will come down on all who do not believe. Jesus is our only peace treaty. And those who believe, who receive Him, it's evident by how they live after they have received Him. I talked to a gentleman this past week. We were just talking about a tweak between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism or biblical Christianity. Roman Catholicism, as in every other religion, is about what Jesus did, or every quote-unquote Christian religion, what Jesus did on the cross, and now I need to do as much good as I can so that when I die, I've done enough good to get into heaven. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's what Mormons believe. It's what some Baptists believe. But you see, the Bible says that Jesus said it is finished. It's paid in full. There's a big difference between trying to gain his approval than trying to say thank you for what you did. You see, when we are saved by God's grace, it's done. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Our works now are simply there to say thank you. Didn't we sing a song like that today? Your love has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. Let me give you $100. That'll help, right? Here's a million dollars because I'm really rich, Lord. Oh, and God's going, thank you. I really needed the extra mill. What an insult to God. I did it all while I was dying. Our fruit, our works are a thank you. So you think about that this week at Thanksgiving. You got good food, whatever it is you like to eat. Our thank you is for what he did on that cross. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Jesus, thank you. You washed away our sins. We can rest in peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are here today who do not acknowledge that, have not believed it, Lord, in your sovereign will, you seek and save the lost as you see fit. I pray that everyone who hears the message today are here to be sought by you. That you save as only you can do. May your word land. May it hit its mark. 
May we who call ourselves Christians bear fruit in keeping with our profession of faith. And may the world take note. Not that we are some sort of a nationalistic group who wants to rule the world, but we are simply people saved by grace who want to speak and teach the love of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving. May God bless you this week. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 